0: Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tokajer of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshachinu, Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat. For this opportunity you've given us to gather together as mishpachah, as family, to worship before you, to encounter you, to hear from you. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word today and we look at the parsha, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word heard and received, that it will be your voice that comes forth, that you will use me as a vessel for you, as a tool for you, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained for this purpose. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen. So as we said earlier in the service this week, we uh, read Parsha Shemot, which is the very first Parsha of Sefer Shemot, which is the book of uh, Exodus. Um, And we begin, you know, the, the last couple of weeks we've been on this journey watching the nation of Israel being birthed and journeying into Egypt Uh, And then this week we begin uh, the journey from Egypt to the promised land or to the fulfillment of the promises of God. And uh, so as we look at this Parsha, uh, studying through it, you know, I I read over the Parsha over and over again throughout the week, and I'm constantly digging and digging and praying and and asking the the Lord for the message that He wants that week to be shared. And uh, I'm a fervent believer that the Word of God is a living Word, right, that we may read the Torah cycle every year of our life, every you know, throughout our entire life, over and over and over again. And it's been my experience, at least, that every time I open up the Word of God, doesn't matter how many times I've read that particular passage, something new comes forth. Not that, like, all of a sudden God snuck something in there that I didn't see before, but I'm at a place in my life where God is teaching me a new lesson, or there's something new He's trying to fix or correct about me that is not quite... Uh, the fullness of his image in my life or whatever it may be. And so as we started to, as I started to read through this Parsha, um, this one question kept coming up over and over and over again in in my mind and, and in my heart. And it's a question that as... Uh, a Messianic rabbi, as somebody in congregational ministry, uh, as simply a believer, many of you may have experienced in your own lives as well, is a question that I hear quite often, especially being a Jewish believer uh, in a post-Holocaust world. This is a question that I hear a lot, that I see over and over and over again. And the question is, why does a good God allow bad things to happen? Why does a good God allow bad things to to happen, and I started to, to work through this parsha, and that question just kept coming up and kept coming up and kept coming up, and I really started to process it and to grasp onto it and to, to try and wrestle with this reality. Right? How many of you guys have ever heard this question before? You ever been asked this, why, why, why would a good God allow bad things to happen? How many of you ever thought that? I mean, maybe just in this last year, we talked earlier about how 2018 for a lot of us has really been, you know, just a mess, a complete wreck one way or another in many of our lives. And and I imagine most of us at some point in our life are like, seriously, like if you're seriously, if you love me and you cherish me, God, and and you have nothing but blessing in store, why is all of this, why is this happening, right? But the reality is that we serve a God who allows us, you and I, to make choices in our own life. Sometimes those choices have consequences. That doesn't mean that those consequences are what God wanted us to go through, but nonetheless, going through those consequences, whatever they may be, going through those consequences a lot of times are when we have more important, it's more important than ever for us to focus on the fact that even in the midst of that storm, in the midst of that trial, that we serve a God who is fighting for us, is taking care of for us, that's working through it. Sometimes we're dealing with stuff that, lo and behold, wasn't even a consequence of our choice. But somebody else's and even more complicated than that how many of us uh, are humans uh, there should be a lot of hands raised if you're if you're not sure that's a different day's discussion so as humans we are all in one way or another derived from Adam and Chaba, and a lot of our problems are their fault they made choices that have burned us for the last going on 6,000 years give or take now Um, and we are still paying the price and the consequences for those, right? Death, despair, sickness, illness, pain, anguish, depression. These are all things that didn't exist in the garden. They didn't exist in this world before the the fall of Adam and Eve. These are things that we as humanity chose to accept into our lives. And so there are all of these things that are whirling around in the world around us that sometimes we get caught up in and we have to deal with that are bad things happening to God's people. And I know it's hard to believe, but just because we're God's people, just because we are believers in Messiah, doesn't mean that those that are not bought by the blood of the Lamb aren't also dealing with bad things. So I've heard the question worded in this way, why does a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? You know what, there's a lot of bad things that happen to bad people too, so right out the gate we cut off part of that question. So the question is, why does a good God allow bad things to happen? And the reality is, and I think we see a lot of the answering of this question coming forth in this Parsha, and I think it's important for us to grasp onto this as believers in the 21st century world and everything happening around us, especially as end-time prophecy continues to progress around us, is for us to recognize the lessons that are learned in this week's Parsha. So if you have your scriptures, open up to Exodus chapter 1, right at the beginning of Exodus, beginning with verse 1. It says now, these are the names of Bnei Israel, the children of Israel who came into Egypt with Jacob, each man with his family: Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and uh, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The souls that came out of the line, uh, out of the line of Jacob, number seventy in all, while Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, as did his brothers and all that generation. Yet Bnei Israel were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied, and grew extremely numerous. So the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And there's been lots of debate uh, about exactly what that means, whether it was really a new king who didn't know of Joseph or if it was the same king that conveniently forgot or a new king over Egypt, a new pharaoh over Egypt that just didn't like that his dad liked Joseph or what. I mean, we really don't know. The best we can do is take this at face value. There's a king that that ignored Joseph's reality uh, and everything that God did uh, through Joseph for the people of Egypt. So verse 9. He said to his people, look, the people, of Israel are too numerous and too powerful for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or else they will grow even more numerous, so that if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. Verse 11, so they set slave masters over them to afflict them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and uh, Ramses as storage cities for Pharaoh. But there, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread. So the Egyptians dreaded the presence of Bnei Israel. They dreaded the presence of the children of Israel. So here we see Israel goes into Egypt as they go in. It's just Jacob and his children and their families. And then it grows into this huge nation that has overrun the nation of Egypt. So much so that the Pharaoh of Egypt, the the leader of the world's superpower of the day, is looking at this ragtag bunch of dudes from uh, the, the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who suddenly sprung up like a bunch of jackrabbits all over the place, and, uh, and he goes, you know what, they are way more powerful than, than we could imagine. I don't know about you, if, if I was the Pharaoh of Egypt, it seems like that's a really easy problem to deal with. It's a lot of extra effort and a lot of extra planning and a lot of extra strategy and such. It has to go into to slavery, you, know, you got to put slave drivers together. You got to map out a plan for all the work that's going to be done. And so it's a lot of effort, and uh, I'm lazy. For me, if I were the king of Egypt, really easy solution is go. Go somewhere else, right? Go find a land that's not in my way. Go find some territory somewhere that nobody's going to bother you for, and go. Problem solved. They're too powerful, and you're afraid they're going to take over? Kick them out. But instead, the, the pharaoh of Egypt held on to them, and made their lives a living hell. Made it absolutely miserable for the Israelites. Made them slaves, put slave drivers over them. Uh, Made some of the Israelites uh, in charge of the slaves as well and and made this whole big uh, mess begin to develop as the Israelites were suffering. But verse 12 makes it clear that the more that the Egyptians afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread. So the Egyptians dreaded the presence of B'nai Israel. So we recognize right out the gate, slavery, pretty messed up, right? So when we're asking that question, why does a good God allow bad things to happen? Slavery, right? That's kind of a bad thing. And here's a bunch of good people getting dealt a bad hand and, uh, and everything that goes forward. Verse 23 of chapter 2, we pick up, Now it came about over the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. B'nai Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out, and their cry from slavery went up to God. God heard the sobbing and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw B'nai Israel, and he was concerned about them. Now, in the midst of these two things we just read, out of Exodus 1 and 2, we have this dude named Moses, right? This guy named Moses, anybody heard of him before? He's kind of a big character in the Bible, He's brought up over and over again. Kind of wrote what we're reading right now. You might want to go study up if you weren't familiar with him. But this dude named Moses pops on the scene, and he comes around at about a time where Pharaoh goes, Hey, slavery's not working. I have an idea. Let's kill them. Let's get rid of them. We'll start with the kids, so they can't grow anymore, and uh, and we'll wipe them all out. And he so ultimately he says tells all the midwives of Israel, I want you to cast all the boys into the water, let them all die. The girls can live. And the goal was they'll all assimilate into Egyptian culture eventually and become Egyptians. It doesn't really matter about them, but kill all the boys. That way they can't procreate any more uh, children. And uh, and so here is is Abraham's parent. i mean Abraham. Moses's parents who. Moses comes on the scene he's born and they go he's a cute kid I don't really want to kill him he's a cute kid he's my kid Uh, I've got two others but I I really don't want to get rid of this one either I definitely don't want to see him die so his mom cracks up this really awesome plan and she goes I'm going to put him in this basket I'm going to put him by the water and we'll see what happens so much so that his sister Miriam uh, who later becomes a prophetess of Israel goes out to the reeds next to the, the the water and waits to watch to see what's going to happen Now you're talking about a bunch of people who, although they are distinctly Removed at this point, they've completely, for the most part, assimilated into Egyptian culture, and uh, and they're really not, you know, that gung ho about serving the God of their forefathers. Um, this is at least a family that, in some way or another, held on to cleaved to the idea of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Miriam stands out by the water, and she's waiting to see what's going to happen. And they trust something good's going to come of this. The sages uh, tell us in the Talmud that uh, when his parents looked at the uh, when Yehovah looked at Moses, at, at baby Moses that she saw the light of God and that she knew that something great was going to come from him and that's why she didn't kill him. I'm kind of sticking to he was cute too. That probably played into it. But uh, so she wanted to make sure for whatever reason that he was saved. So uh, all of a sudden, Pharaoh's daughter comes up, right? She walks up, I'm paraphrasing a lot. I'm making it a lot longer really than it was even in the you know, 10 or 12 verses that it took to get us out. But that's beside the point, it's fun. So as as uh, Pharaoh's daughter comes out, she finds the baby and she goes, "Hey, look! It's a Hebrew child." Recognizes it's a boy, and instead of killing him like her dad wants, she goes, "Better idea. He's gonna be my kid. I'm gonna adopt him." And Miriam jumps out of the reeds. Boo! Guess what? He's a Hebrew kid, like you said. You know what? I've I know who can nurse him. I got just the lady for it. She takes him back to Yochebed And for the first three years of his life He's nursed by his mother He's raised by his mother I imagine that his mother fed into him At a young age The history, the story, and the heritage Of who their people are And what the promises of God were uh, So that ultimately at three He's sent back to Pharaoh's house And from there till he's 40 He's raised as Pharaoh's grandson I'll let you do the math But ultimately that means He was raised to one day perhaps become Pharaoh Alright Let that sink in for a moment Here's a Hebrew that Pharaoh wanted dead that is now being raised in his household as his grandson who may very well one day become Pharaoh himself. It's a big lot of discombobulated mess. That's some mari Povich action here or something. I don't know. It's weird. But nonetheless, we see God's providence. And I don't know why that 80s talk show host came in my head. But nonetheless, <laughs> Danielle has to deal with this all the time. You just get it a couple of times a week. Um. But as we're looking at this, we see that that God in his providence is protecting Moses for a reason. And we ultimately, I mean, we all know the story. We see what happens. But here we see that as the Pharaoh dies, who has put such great burden on Israel pharaoh dies and a new pharaoh arises at this point moses has already left because he killed an egyptian to protect an israelite and then the israelites the next day a couple of them were fighting and uh tradition says it was uh dotan and aviram who later on caused a lot of problem for moses in the wilderness but uh they uh they're fighting he goes out and says hey you're a bunch of idiots what are you fighting about and they go what are you going to kill us like you killed the egyptian and he goes oh crap they know about it i'm out and he's running from Pharaoh. Just like uh, just like his great, 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 however many grandfathers back, Jacob ran for his life because he was afraid his brother was going to kill him. Moses was afraid that his grandfather, or I guess at this point his uncle, or so I don't know how it works out with this new Pharaoh. He runs out afraid he's going to die. So he takes off for the, the hills. And as he's out there wandering, this new Pharaoh makes life for the Israelites even worse. Makes it even worse. Now, uh, you know it's just a complete and total mess and finally finally the hearts of israel break and it's interesting because like i said before when israel comes into or the children of jacob come into egypt they just go gung hold for for egyptian culture right why why mess things up let's just become like the people around us and make life easy be a lot easier and so for uh, as a whole for 100 years get 114 years give or take The Israelites really didn't look like what the Israelites would become, but they looked a lot like the Egyptians. They acted a lot like the Egyptians, kind of like Joseph did. And so here we recognize that this king of Egypt has died, and finally Israel cries out. Makes you wonder what would have happened if their heart had been broken before, when all of the mess first started, and had they cried out to the Lord then, what might have occurred? And you got to understand there's this important concept throughout the Scriptures. When it talks about the people of God crying out, it's not like they stub their toe in the middle of the night and they're dropping F-bombs left and right or, or you know, they're throwing a fit because everything's a mess or their favorite team lost a big game or anything. like. When the Scripture talks about the people of God crying out, it's a reference to repentance. The nation of Israel begin to cry out asking God to forgive them and to Bring salvation for them, to forgive them and to redeem them, to, to bring them out of the pain and the anguish that they're in. So verse 24 of chapter two says, God heard their sobbing and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 25, but God saw uh B'nai Israel and he was concerned about them. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. So he led the flock to the, the farthest end of the wilderness, coming to the mountain of God. Horeb, Mount Horeb, which is also Mount Sinai. By the way, you ever notice how many of God's uh, uh, leaders that he develops throughout the scriptures were shepherds before he called them to lead the people of Israel, right? Moses here, we see Joseph, we see Jacob, we see David, all of these people that are shepherds that are getting into the the, the stink and the mess of shepherding. Uh, and as a shepherd of the people of God, there's a lot of stink and mess that goes with that too. Um, and... Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a book called, uh, a, a great leadership book for pastors called uh, They Smell Like Sheep, um, and, and it really is. It's a great lesson for 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 pastors and Messianic rabbis. It wasn't necessarily intended for us, but for pastors and elders of, of congregations to, to learn that the only way you can lead sheep properly is if you're actually with them, interacting with them, rubbing elbows with them in their life, at their dinner table. If you're actually a part of their life, you can't be just some you know, 17 pastors, system pastors removed uh, as the senior pastor and nobody has, has a clue who you are besides your face on a big screen. There's this connection that needs to be there, right? Verse two, then the angel of Adonai appeared to him in a flame of fire from within a bush. So he looked and saw the bush burning with fire, yet it was not consumed. Moses thought, as we said during Q&A, Moses thought, I'll go now, see this great sight. Why is this bush not burnt? Bush is on fire. Moses is curious. Moses is, I imagine, at this point, a forty-something-year-old man that suddenly became a toddler. You ever seen your husband act like that before? Danielle does every time a motorcycle's around. Like, who? What's, what's going on over here? Uh here's Moses. You know, oh, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of freaky. It's kind of weird. I'm, I'm gonna go in the basement, the scary movie, and see what's going on in the dark basement with all the blades hanging in the ceiling. And so Moses goes down to. Uh, the bush and he's looking to see what's going on and all of a sudden uh, from the midst of the bush verse 4 when Adonai saw that he turned to look he called to him out of the midst of the bush and said Moses Moses so he answered he named me here am I then he said come no closer take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground moreover he said I am the God of your father the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob so Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God then Adonai said by the way vast, stark difference between what Moses is like later on in Exodus when he's crying out to the Lord, let me just see your face. Let me, if if I've found favor in your midst, let me see your face. And the Lord says, no, you can't see my face. You can't see my Shekinah directly, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and then I'll pass by and you can see my backside as I pass by says, I am the God of your father, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses hit his face because he was afraid to look at God. Verse 7, then I said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their slave masters, for I know their plans, or their pains, I'm sorry. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of the land into a good and large land, a land flowing milk and honey, into the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites. Jebusites now behold the cry of uh, Bnei Israel has come to me moreover I have seen the oppression that the Egyptians have inflicted upon them come now I will send you to Pharaoh so that you may bring my people Bnei Israel out from Egypt so we'll pause there remember how I said just a few verses before this that suddenly after the Pharaoh that put him into slavery dies a new Pharaoh arises and now they cry out to the Lord and here the Lord says I have now heard Israel's cries and I'm prepared to, to redeem them. I'm prepared to bring salvation. So here's the question. Since we're talking about this idea of, of the off posed question of why does a good God allow bad things to happen, do you think God only just now in the narrative realized what Israel's going through? Or do you think that God was fully aware of all of the mess Israel was going through while they were in it? Look, God's everywhere, omnipotent, omnipresent. He's anywhere and everywhere all at once. He knows what's happening. I know that's hard to conceptualize and to think in our finite human mind, but he is an infinite reality. He absolutely knew what Israel was going through. And it wasn't that God's heart wasn't breaking for his children, for the nation of Israel that he chose as his own inheritance. It wasn't that his heart wasn't breaking for them, that he allowed them to continue to to stifle and to boil in this pot, this, this mess that they're mixed up in but he was waiting for them to make the choice to want his salvation, to want his redemption, to want his grace and mercy. God wants us to choose to cry out for him to drag us out of the mess that we put ourselves in. To drag, You know, Israel probably wouldn't have been, and I'm, I'm simply speaking hypothetics here because all we have to look at is the case study and hindsight of what really happened. But I'm willing to bet that Israel probably would have been in a much better situation had they stayed in Goshen. Had they never assimilated into Egyptian culture. Had they held on to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob their entire time in Egypt. Had they simply stuck to shepherding the flocks, which was what God used through Joseph to bring protection for Jacob and his children when he brought them into Goshen in the first place because the Egyptians hated shepherds. They thought they were gross because they smelled bad because they smelled like the sheep. (laughs) Loops all back around eventually. But as we look at this, what we realize is is Israel didn't do all of that, any of that. Israel quickly just kind of went, oh, we're Egyptians now. Let's go do this. This will be fun. And they found themselves in a world of hurt. Finally, they cry out to God. I honestly believe, as is the case in most of our lives, God is already working on the fix and the solution to our problems before we even realize there is a problem. But to actually find the solution to the problem that God has placed in our path, we have to turn to His way. We can't keep walking 180 degrees away from Him and expect that somehow, as we get farther and farther away from Him, we're going to somehow miraculously find His solution. The only way we can find a solution is to walk toward Him. The solution's already there, it's already waiting. God already had a plan to redeem Israel out of Egypt. He sent them there for the distinct purpose of them growing into a nation, and more so for the fulfillment, I truly believe this, for the fulfillment to begin, or at least a foreshadowing of the fulfillment that would begin, that was promised to Abraham that through his seed the nations, not just Israel, but the nations would be be blessed. And when we come to the other side of the exodus, what we realize is a mixed multitude of the nations left with Israel, To Go serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we pick up with verse uh, 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring Bnei Israel out of Egypt? And I think in Moses' mind, he's going, who am I, the dude that killed the Egyptian that they want to kill, that you're sending to go you want me to die? What are you doing here? Verse 12. So he said, I will surely be with you. So that will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So he says, the sign that I will give you is you'll bring the nation of Israel back here. In Exodus 19 and 20, that's exactly what happens on Shavuot when they stand at the base of Mount Sinai and they hear the audible voice as a whole come forth before the nation of Israel. Verse 13, but Moses said to God, suppose I go to Ben Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I say to them? God answers, Moses I am who I am. I am that which I have always been. Then he said, You are to say to Bnei Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, You are to say to Bnei Israel, Adonai, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever and the name by which I should be remembered from generation to generation. And so Moses goes in this back and forth thing with god for a little while and he argues with him five different times and i don't know if you've ever argued with god but usually it doesn't pan out well for for us um and so moses loses the argument and he goes and he ends up you know acquiescing and going to do what god asked and now i think his heart is truly in it once he starts and it's got to be when you go back to face was probably your cousin or an uncle or something that's sitting on the throne of Egypt and you got to say, okay, um, we're family, but uh, all these other people are really my family and um, I need you to let them go. (laughs) I know that you want to kill me and I know that I cause a lot of problems. Let me cause a few more. You need to let us go. And so... All of this is going on and Moses encounters the the presence of the Lord at the burning bush and and he he converses with him, interacts with him, and the Lord begins this journey of Moses going into the belly of the fish, into the belly of hell itself for the nation of Israel on earth to go and bring redemption and salvation to our people. Exodus chapter 5, beginning with verse... uh, and get my notes to work. Beginning with verse 19. It says, So the foremen of Bnei Israel saw that they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of the bricks from day to day. Then they met, this is after Moses went to, to Pharaoh the first time, then they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came from Pharaoh. Because see, at first when Moses shows up, they're all excited. God's going to free us of this. And Moses goes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh makes it worse for him. And here they come back to Moses. So they said to him, verse 21, May I look on you and judge because you have made us a stench in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to Adonai and said, Adonai, why have you brought evil on this people? Is this, you? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought evil on this people. You have not delivered your people at all. In case you didn't catch that, this is Moses' Hey, God, how would a good God allow bad things to happen? This is Moses asking that same question. You brought evil on these people. Is this why you sent me? You have not delivered your people at all. Could you imagine having the chutzpah to speak to the God of all creation in such a way? And before you get all righteous and holier than now, I'm willing to bet you probably did it this week. This is exactly how we act to God when we're going through crisis. When we're going, God, how could you let this happen? I'm bought by the blood of the Lamb. I am one of Your chosen. How could you let this happen to me? And God standing back, going, "Here's my path, and look where you are. What do you mean? How did? I... Really, you're gonna, you're way over there. You're gonna blame this on me? Adonai speaks to Moses in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now you will see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. By way of a strong hand, he will let them go and drive them out of this land. The whole reason God allowed for what Israel went through in Egypt to occur, as we will find out moving into next week's Parsha, is so that he can reveal his strong arm to the nation of Israel and to the nation of Egypt and to every nation that would come after them as the message of the good news of his salvation of Israel from Egypt goes forth. The reason that they went through everything they went through wasn't because God put them in that place, but God allowed them to be in that place so that in spite of the choices that they made, he could make something greater come from it. Open up to Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. Verse 18. As I said before, the most often question I get asked, most pastors and rabbis will get asked, especially as a Jewish believer in the post-Holocaust world, is how could a good God let bad things happen? And I think Romans 8, Paul's heart really pours out in this very issue. And he begins to answer that question in an even greater way. Verse 18, For I consider the suffering of this present time not worthy to be compared with the coming glory to be revealed to us. Pause there. I consider the suffering that I'm dealing with now. How many bank accounts are bordering on beyond drained? How many are dealing with major illness crises? Either yourself, family, friends, whatever it may be. How many are dealing with family that hate you? The family that don't understand you and the way that you worship and live. How many are dealing with work crisis? How many are dealing, I don't care, I mean, let's, let's settle this. How many have had a single crisis in the last year? It's kind of back to that, how many are humans? If your hand didn't go up, we need to talk later. <laughs> he says, I consider the sufferings I'm going through now. I consider the suffering I'm going through now in this present time not worthy to be compared to the coming glory. Let that sink in. We focus on the suffering. What would things look like if we focused on the glory waiting on the other end? That's what Paul's saying. What would things look like if we, like Paul, stopped worrying about the pain and the anguish? Look, people were trying to kill Paul. Granted, Paul was trying to kill people before, but people were trying to kill Paul. Left and right, everywhere he went, somebody wanted to kill him. People were trying to throw him out of windows and stab him, whatever else they could, and he started really weird arguments between Pharisees and Sadducees to save his own hide. Oh, they're here to kill me. Hey, um, he says something about resurrection. What's your thoughts? All right, I'm out. And he says, in spite of everything that he went through, he considers his sufferings in this present time not worthy to be compared with the coming glory to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God for we know that the whole creation groans together and suffers birth pains until now and not only creation but even ourselves we ourselves who have first who have the first fruits of the ruach of the spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption the redemption of our body for in hope we were saved but hope that has seen that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees i hope for a lot of really cool movies to come out a lot of them I go to see I'm no longer hoping for them because I'm there I hope for my favorite baseball team or my favorite football team to win didn't happen this year different story usually it does and when it does happen and some of you are fans of teams that may or may not win today in the uh, playoffs but The reality is that we hope for what we don't see, but once we see it, we stop hoping for it, right? So we've been hoping for salvation. Guess what we have? Salvation. For we hope, uh, for in hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who uh, who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, then we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In the same way, the Ruach helps in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Ruach himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Ruach because he intercedes for the Kedoshim, for the holy ones, according to the will of God. Now we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That means both good and bad in our lives. Both the good that God has laid before you and the bad that you decided not to walk into the good and to take the bad instead of. Or the bad that other people thrust on you that you never wanted in your life in the first place. Paul says that all things work together for good for those that love God who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified. What then shall we say in view of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who cares about all the crap you're going through? If God is for you, none of that matters. If we focus on the glory to come instead of the mess we're in, it changes the whole discussion. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect if it is God, if it is God who justifies? Who is the one who condemns? It is Messiah who died and moreover was raised and is now at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. Who shall shall separate us from the love of Messiah? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Anybody gone through some of that stuff? Just in the last year? Who shall separate us from the love of Messiah? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake? Whose sake? The Lord's. We are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yeshua says they don't hate you. They hate the one that is in you. They don't hate you. They hate Messiah who is in you. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. So we go back to that question. How can a good God allow bad things to happen? And the question I have for you as a believer Is when those bad things happen, are you focused on the good God or on the bad things? Because the suffering you're sitting in now is nothing compared to the glory that is awaiting you. The suffering that you're dealing with now is nothing compared to the message that God can use your life to bring forth through that crisis in somebody else's life. We have a number of people in this congregation that have battled with cancer scares over the last couple of years. And guess what? There are people who are in the midst of the crisis of cancer in general, whatever type of cancer it may be, that I just can't quite speak to in the same way that one of you that's gone through it can. That doesn't mean that God can't or won't speak through me in that situation. But the crisis that we've gone through God didn't want us to go through them in the first place but now that he has he wants to use them for the good of his glory and his purposes. So instead of getting hung up on the bad let's focus on the good. Instead of trying to blame God for all the crap going on in the world around us which ultimately traces back to humanity making a choice to walk away from him whether it was you physically in your own life or one of your your family members or whatever else that thrust it upon you or we just simply trace it all back to, adam and Chavah, back to adam and eve it was humanity's choice to walk away from god that caused all of this suffering to exist and paul says the suffering is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us so when we as believers going through a bunch of mess look it's one thing when the world around us ask that question if they don't no Messiah, if they are not bought by the blood of the Lamb, they are not able to see the glory of His presence even in our times of crisis. But we are. And what kind of message are we sending to the world around us when we join with them in crying out, God, how could you let this happen? God, how could you let this happen? I'm having financial issues. Well, have you been tithing? No. God didn't let it happen. You did it. My work friends all hate me. Have you shown them the love of Messiah? Well, not really. It's not God's fault. How about you go fix it? How about you go show the love of Messiah? My car ran out of gas. It's probably not God's fault. You just didn't look at the needle. (laughs) You just got to understand, there's always a flip side. And so whereas we blame God... When things go rough. Or we blame everyone around us. The reality is, is the same God that opened our hearts and our minds to the truth of his salvation, Yeshua Mashiach, is the same God that is fighting for us today. The same God that fought for us yesterday. The same God that's gonna fight for us tomorrow. And it's important when we find ourselves in those crises like Israel in the wilderness We've got to understand, I mean Israel and Egypt, I'm sorry. We've got to understand that God didn't just suddenly realize that everything around us has fallen to crap. God watched it all transpire. He knew what was happening. And the reality is, is at any point in this crisis's development in our life, if we had simply turned back to the Lord in full faithfulness, recognizing His glory over the problem that we're in, A lot of the crisis we find ourselves in hours, days, weeks, months later would have never happened. If Israel, the entire time that they were in Egypt, had stayed in Goshen and stayed on fire for the Lord, a lot of what they went through may never have happened. We'll never know, just like we'll never know what would have happened if Adam had smacked the fruit out of Eve's hand before she bit it. Never know. We're stuck with the consequence of what did happen, though. And in the midst of that, this suffering that we find ourselves in now, it's nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. It's nothing compared to the glory that is in us. It's nothing compared to the reality of what God has already brought us through, what He offered His only begotten Son for our lives for. It's nothing compared to the beauty of His blood atonement for our sins. It's nothing compared to the way that he wants to use your and my life to impact the lives of those around us. It's nothing compared to the glory that awaits on the other end. And when we see Israel come out of Egypt and we see the might and power of the strength of the arm of God leading them out of Egypt, we recognize that God had a plan the entire time. And Israel should have never asked, how could you let this happen? But instead... We should have said, what do you have in store for us next? What are you showing me in this crisis? What about my life as a matching up with your image so that I can get back on track? Sometimes it's not an easy thing to realize. Sometimes it's not a matter of we chose to sin and we're dealing with the consequence. Sometimes it's a matter of somebody else did. And we're dealing with the consequence. And even in those situations, we have to say, what are you trying to show me in my life? Sometimes we have to forgive. Not easy, not fun, but we have to. Sometimes we have to forgive ourselves. Sometimes we have to recognize, all the time, we have to recognize that greater is he who is in me. Than he who is in the world, and all of the stuff Paul mentioned in Romans eight, asking if it could ever separate us—that's all stuff of this world. That's all things of this world, fallen world. It's all things that God told us we had power, dominion, and authority over. Go back to Genesis. God told Adam, "I'm giving you dominion over the things of this world." And in the Ruach Hakodesh and the outpouring of the Ruach Hakodesh from Acts two. As we said in our Ruach encounter study, that was God reestablishing our dominion and authority over things of this world that at the fall, at our choice for sin, we gave to the enemy. And God said, nope, nope, this was yours. And now we get to go speak God's truth in a dark and disgusting world because His light is now a part of our lives. So I want to encourage you when things go rough, Don't turn to God and say, why? But turn to God and say, what are you trying to teach me? What about my life can be more in alignment with your image, with your likeness? What about my life does not show your love to the world around us? What are you trying to show me in this crisis? Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Lord, I thank you that your word is true, that it is real, that it is ever living. Father, I thank you that you have given us salvation and the blood atonement of Messiah Yeshua and restored us, that we have experienced the freedom that that Israel experienced from Egypt in just a few chapters forward in the book of Exodus. We've experienced it from the freedom of slavery to sin and to the enemy's ways. And Father, I just ask that you continue to reveal the reality of your glory in our lives, of your Shekhinah, of your divine presence in our hearts and our lives, that even as we go through trials and tribulations, that we will glorify you. And Father, that even more so when things are going easy in our lives, that we will glorify you, that we will give you all praise and adoration, that we will turn our hearts and our lives to you, and that we will choose to walk boldly on your path of righteousness. In the name of Yeshua our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen.